Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, New Zealand is a long, slender country. Most of us live less than an hour away from the beach. But the sea is alive, and the sea is rising. And that's a problem we're going to have to deal with sooner or later, because we're already seeing its effects. Almost 100 people were evacuated from a South Dunedin rest home and the fire service has had dozens of calls for help. With the frequency of flooding claims rising, insurers have paid out in Dunedin, Whanganui, Wellington and the West Coast in the past 12 months and highly likely to rise further. Insurers are saying money that's not spent on updating infrastructure will end up on insurance premiums. Insurers are warning the billions of dollars of council infrastructure under threat from sea level rises are just the start. A new report from local government New Zealand shows $8 billion of council-owned assets would be at risk with a sea level rise of one and a half metres. The bank came crashing down from next door and it created a dam which just funnelled all the water coming down the hill in the front door of the house. Tens of thousands of properties and billions of dollars are at stake here and this affects all of us, from insurers to banks to homeowners to renters. Soon I'm going to talk to Stuff senior political reporter Thomas Coughlin, who's written extensively about this issue, and he's going to highlight a section in a 580-page review of the Resource Management Act. It's called Managed Retreat, and it raises big questions about how we can possibly fix this fairly and without breaking banks. We have choices that we will be forced to make, and the choices that we make, the political choices that we make about who we bail out and who we don't, will say a lot about our politics. But first, since what we're talking about here is based on the premise that sea levels are rising and at an accelerated rate, here's Professor Tim Naish from Victoria University's Antarctic Research Centre. We're very certain about what will happen in the next 20 or 30 years because that's already, if you like, baked into the system from the global warming we've had to date. So we can put hand on heart and prepare for around about 30 centimetres of sea level rise by mid-century. And, you know, that's unavoidable. That's, that's coming down the pipeline. Then the picture gets a bit more complicated, and that very much depends on how we deal with our greenhouse gas emissions. So if we achieve the Paris target of limiting global warming to less than two degrees of warming, we will expect about 50 centimetres, half a metre, of global sea level rise by the end of the century. If we completely fail and continue on the track we're on, and we end up with the so-called high-emission scenario, then sea level could be as high as 1.2 metres by the end of the century. There is, uh, I understand, an unknown quantity here as well, which is the speed at which the Antarctic ice sheets melt. What sorts of worst-case scenarios could we be looking like if that turns out worse than we would hope? That's a really important point. Some models that we're using computer models to predict how the Antarctic ice sheet might behave in the future. Some of these models suggest the contribution from the Antarctic ice sheet is underestimated. We might not only get a little bit of sea level rise, we might get a lot of sea level rise and rather quickly from Antarctica. So some of the models suggest that we could expect an additional 40 centimetres from Antarctica by the end of the century. There are other lines of evidence that say, although unlikely, we should be preparing for a worst-case scenario of two metres of global sea level rise by the end of the century. 
Now, let me qualify that by saying that's not just Antarctica, that's Greenland, Antarctica, and the melting of the glaciers and the heating and expanding of the ocean. So worst-case scenario with an with a Antarctic meltdown would be around two metres. So this is a very big uncertainty that decision-makers have to deal with. But most of us don't own waterfront properties, so why should we care? Thomas Coughlin has some answers. This point has been made in a lot of the reports around this is that sea levels have risen and fallen throughout human history. You know, now humans haven't been responsible for it, but, you know, atmospheric changes do occur, environmental changes do occur, and, you know, people have changed where they lived uh, in response to that. Now, why why that's important right now, though, is that we have a, a capitalist property-owning democracy. That's who we are as a society. We place a whole lot of emotional and actual you know, material significance on homeowning. Why it's an issue is that seventy-five uh, percent of New Zealanders live within ten kilometres of the coastline. I think uh, it's two-thirds of New Zealanders live in areas prone to flooding, according to um, the Climate Change Technical Working Group, which was something that was done in twenty seventeen. They did some modelling on this. So th- the issue for us in New Zealand is that we're an island, we're a coastal society. We live in areas that are quite vulnerable to this, and our whole sort of way of living is is centred around areas that are either going to be underwater soon or prone to flooding. Mm. It's probably important not to exaggerate it. Like The numbers of homes that we're talking about is not most people by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's not even a, a large number of homes relative to the, the overall number of homes in New Zealand. But politically and economically, it's still quite significant when you are talking about shifting a, a lot of people away from coastlines and a government telling people what they can and can't do with regard to their own homes. Um, it's something that, that politically, you know, in a, again, in a kind of capitalist democracy, it's something we're not really used to doing, and it's something we, our laws and institutions aren't really... Um, we do it from time to time, but it's, it's always uncomfortable, which is, I suppose, why we're here, is because we need to start talking about doing this much more than we're used to doing. So this isn't an immediate threat, but it's important to act now because fundamental decisions have to be made that are guaranteed to upset a lot of people, decisions that will make lockdown look easy. Soon, some very expensive coastal properties will become uninhabitable, very much like wholesale suburbs of Christchurch became uninhabitable after the big earthquakes. And Christchurch is mentioned in this RMA report, because the the red zone is essentially what happens. What's stopping the government from doing that, from identifying red zones and saying, look, Mm -hmm. these properties in in these areas, they're going to go. They're going to go in the next sort of 50 to 100 years, and maybe we'll pay you out amortised over a long period of time, and people can't build in these areas again. But you know about this um, and you can't say that you weren't warned and if you don't if you don't pull finger over the next 40 years we think that's a reasonable (laughs) period of time um, then tough bickies well I think I think the red zone is probably what's going to happen Um, and I think that that's the sort of warning here is that that a lot of people lost money on their homes in the red zone I mean nearly everyone did because I think they were the price that was offered for them was four or five years out of date so they they lost they, they lost out on on I mean, gosh, imagine at the moment if you lost out on five years of... of you wouldn't be happy, no. <laughs> so that's sort of, that is the sort of the stick here, is that um, the government will probably be there for a lot of people in some way, but you're not going to... You, 
get everything I would imagine and and the thing that people are talking about a lot um, and this is you know this isn't really published anywhere but the thing that is being talked about a lot is the issue of wealthy people in holiday homes mm. um, and it's very hard to legislate for because you can't have a clause in a law that says you know if you're a rich dick and you buy a house by the sea you don't get bailed out but that is sort of essentially what is being looked at at the moment is ways of of, of ensuring that you know, people whose lives are in their home, who've lived there for a long time and, and who frankly couldn't have known better, even though we, we've all known about climate change for a long time and we should all be serious and acknowledge the fact that a lot of us haven't actually taken it into our day-to-day decision-making. Mm. Um, people like that will probably be all right uh, in some way. Uh, they'll probably lose out, but they'll be okay. Um, but the issue of holiday homes and, and mega mansions is one that people should be wary of. I guess the danger is if it forces the government into the business of making making moral calls almost. You know, who deserves to get paid out and who doesn't? Like, who acted yeah. the right way and who acted carelessly? Exa- well, exactly. And that's where politics and, and the economy are you know, fantastic friends. The, the economy makes cruel, harsh decisions, but you know, it's kind of faceless, so you have to live with it. Um, whereas the government... The government has a face, and you know that, that face always wants to be doing the the right thing because um, you know you get to boot them out if they don't. <laughs> I think why this issue sort of interests me is that it's kind of this climate change has always been talked about as a sort of theoretical environmental problem, and you know we need to sort of use science and ingenuity and, and the economy to fix um, what is fundamentally an environmental problem and an economic problem, decarbonize our economy. Um, and fix the environment to the point where it doesn't harm us anymore. And I think a lot of politicians have quite rightly uh, also called it a social problem. And they're often they're often called the watermelon greens, mm. green on the outside and red on the inside. And this is <laughs> this is this is something of I think a, a moral or, or a political victory for them, because this recognises that this is an environmental environmental problem absolutely that we are going to face. We can't stop it, uh, and actually we need to start. We have choices that we will be forced to make, and the choices that we make, the political choices that we make about who we bail out and who we don't, will say a lot about our politics. Um, do we bail out people who did know better? Um, do we do we use money from the poor? Do we use money from everyone um, to bail out people who are very, very rich? Uh, do we take money from people who have no houses and will never have a house to allow someone who already has many houses to buy a few more? You know, it's it's it forces some very, very, very uncomfortable political decisions on people, um, and I think that's why. Again, it's probably important to mention that this is all sort of speculative. We don't actually know what this will look like at all yet, but the reason why we're talking about it is because it will it will force some of the most difficult political decisions of onto a government in our lifetimes. You know, I think actually, you know, the lockdown was a difficult decision, but this is nothing compared to that because this is pointing at people and saying, right. Yeah. move yeah. and then it's pointing to other people and saying right give me your cash to help them move <laughs> it's very complicated and it's difficult because obviously our property ownership in New Zealand is very unequal but our taxation system is very unequal mm. you know like the, the government has got to put through its tax hike um, income tax hike in the next few weeks so it's $500 million a year um, in the first year it sounds like a lot of money but w- we nearly make $2 billion a year from taxing cigarettes mm. You know, we tax we're, we're taxing some of the very poorest smokers in the world four times as much as we're taxing the wealthiest income earners. <laughs> 
So, you know, well, so as, as, as the tax hike as, on the wealthiest yeah, income, yeah. income earners, I should say. But, you know, $2 billion is a lot when you compare it to what we earn in GST. You know, it's a tiny number of New Zealanders still smoke, and those New Zealanders pay an exorbitant amount proportionally of our tax. Mm. It's, and it, all through the tax system, there are these hypocrisies and inequalities. And so when we are talking about, one, the inequality of property, two, the inequality of tax, you have, you know, this inequality multiplied. <laughs> so how many houses are we actually talking about here? The NIWA report that fed into that Parliamentary Commission for the Environment report said that in the first instance, now this is sort of for your sort of um, relatively low level of, of sea level rise. As of 2011, there were 43,000 homes in these areas, uh, and those homes housed 133,000 people. So it's kind of, at that time, which was kind of the population of, of Hamilton. So if, if, if the, the areas sort of continued to grow at roughly the, the same pace as they, as they had been growing throughout the decade, uh, you'd be looking at moving you know, roughly the, the population of, of Hamilton from where they are to, to somewhere else. And that is obviously quite a, a big task. And $2011, it would have cost $20 billion. So you, roughly, again, you know, equivalent to some of the, the early sort of wage subsidy stuff, double the wage subsidy, essentially, in terms of the COVID kind of equivalents. So it's it's a lot of money, and, and it's 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 a difficult thing to sort of conceptualise. Mm. And the, the difficult thing with that as well is that the longer we leave it, the more expensive it gets, because remember, there's, apart from your own fears, there's no strong disincentive to, to not live in a low-lying area at the moment. So people are, and who doesn't want to live by the sea? You know, <laughs> this is New Zealand. <laughs> right. So best case scenario, we're looking at 43,000 houses, which are homes for about 130,000 people, being uninhabitable by 2050. That is more than twice the number of homes lost in the Christchurch earthquake. There's a chance the world will make some inroads into stalling climate change, but if things get really bad, the numbers look horrible. Say a sea level rise of zero to three metres... 109,000 homes will be lost. That's 280,000 people. And with sea level rises will come more damaging storms. Here's Professor Tim Nash. So this is not necessarily because the storms are getting any bigger. It's because we're raising the, the baseline, right? We're raising the baseline on top of which everything happens. So if you have a perfect storm, a worst-case scenario... Um, usually what happens there is you have a high tide that coincides with a low-pressure event that raises sea level, that coincides with a major storm surge and swell, and all of that, when you put that on top of an extra 30 centimetres, all of a sudden, you know, the damage you get from the 100-year flood is an, an annual occurrence. It's something that's going to happen every year, and it's just simply by raising the bathtub. So all the action is happening on 30 centimetres more of sea level rise around New Zealand. Mm. And so this is the thing that um, we need to plan for. Sea level rise is this, this slow, incremental thing in a way, but it's the extreme events that, that we hear about in the news. It's the extreme events like the rainfall event we had in the Hawke's Bay. Napier is being pummeled by more heavy rain this evening, hampering clean-up efforts after a one-in-200-year event. That are becoming more and more common as the planet warms and as sea level rises. And Thomas Coughlin says all this has horrendous repercussions for insurance. 
if you live um, in one of these homes, at a certain point, insurers will stop insuring them. And the thing I don't think a lot of New Zealanders realise is that the insurance market changes really quickly. You know, you, you renew your insurance contract fairly regularly. So as, as Wellingtonians are discovering, the insurance situation can change um, rapidly. Insurers are worried about this, and they're, they're having a lot of input into how we talk about managed retreat because they really don't want to be responsible for insuring homes that, for reasons of calculating the level of risk that they want to carry, they, they can't, you can't make insurance work in an area that gets flooded every year. Tell me a bit more about the bank aspect of this. Why is the banking sector concerned? Is this essentially because most of the properties that are affected by this, at the moment anyway, are technically the banks. Well, I mean, there would be a mortgage on it, so it's technically the banks, right? And if the cost of maintaining that property skyrockets and people just default on their mortgages, then the bank is stuck with thousands and thousands of white elephants. Is that the the fear? Yes, that's where it becomes a problem for the banks. So, you know, we were talking about those 40,000 homes. Um, You know, they they will be owned uh, in large part by a handful of banks. So all of a sudden you're not talking about... you're, You're not only talking about you know, 130,000 people losing their homes, you're talking about actually a small number of big financial institutions um, who have a bit of a problem on their hands. Um, and, you know, there's that old quote about yeah, if you owe the bank $100, you've got a problem. If you owe the bank $100 million, the bank's got a problem. Um, and the problem in New Zealand, obviously, is that we've got very expensive housing that um, New Zealand uh, homeowners don't actually own a whole lot of. So, yeah, the banks are pretty exposed to this. And, you know, if you think about... I mean, some, part of this managed retreat issue is is the equity of it because you have areas in New Brighton and, and South Dunedin where, uh, you know, it is residential, it's not always high income, um, so that the people do have a limited ability to, to sort of um, take control of their own destiny, I guess, and, and get out. Uh, but the other issue with um, seaside property is that um, there are a whole lot of people with a whole lot of money uh, who have ploughed a whole lot of their you know, substantial resources into building beautiful palatial mansions by the sea that, you know, one could represent a bit of a problem for the banks um, but also represent a bit of a problem for the government because there seems to be very little fairness in using sort of general taxpayer funding to bail out someone's holiday home. <laughs> that, is, that is sort of what is probably going to happen over a long period of time. And I think one of the good, the, the good news stories here is that we do have a bit of a long lead time. Um, so the government, yes, the, the government will, will work out a scheme whereby it buys a lot of people out. Um, great. But, that's going to be, yeah. that's just great. That's what I love to hear is New Zealand house prices increasing astronomically over the past 20 years and then the government paying face value for all of these beachside properties after decades of knowing that it was going to happen. <laughs> well, it's sort of like, it's one of those things. So the government, yes, people will almost certainly, and again, like this, this report is, there's not a lot of detail because I don't think anyone wants to talk about the detail right yet. Mm. But the system they're talking about, or the question, the big question that is hanging over all of this, and the question we'll be talking about for three years, and why we why we need to start talking about this now as as people who, you know, are engaged politically, is the funding mechanism, and that's you know two very boring wonkish words in the middle of a 580-page report. But the funding mechanism is essentially a question about whether homeowners, people who, who are enjoying the richness of the property market, mm-hmm. um, essentially bail themselves out, or whether we as New Zealanders, and you know there are New Zealanders who own property and there are New Zealanders who don't own property, whether New Zealanders bail out 
homeowners. You would think it would be a politically dangerous thing to do after all that has happened and is continuing to happen in the housing market for the government to ask non-property owning New Zealanders to pay a new tax to bail out property owners and help buy their beachside houses. That would seem like a tough sell. It would, it would. But then, you know, you only need to look at every political party that's ever mentioned putting a tax on property of some kind. And that is exactly what the other, probably the other obvious funding mechanism is, is some sort of levy, which, you know, levies and taxes, you're splitting hairs if you're talking about the difference between them. (laughs) Some sort of levy on property. That could work something like the EQC, but it would have to be backed by the Crown. The government doesn't want to be seen to be bailing out wealthy people's holiday homes, and it doesn't want a system that encourages people to move closer to the ocean because they know there's a backstop. And one of the signals that you should be hearing if you're buying a house right now is don't buy a house near the sea. You should be hearing that loud and clear. And yet if you look at property prices in seaside suburbs, they're going through the roof. Because I think there is some sense, especially in some of the, the you know wealthier suburbs in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin, or particularly Auckland and Wellington, is that the, the people are banking in on some kind of government bailout. Because you, seriously, if you're buying a $2 million property by the sea right now, you should be thinking quite carefully about how lo- what the resale value of that will be mm. when it comes time for you to move on. The only good thing about this is that we are looking at it over a long period of time, but the longer we leave it, the worse it gets. And because there are some really difficult political decisions here about who pays and what we what sort of a system we set up, we are inclined to not talk about it. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Thomas Coughlin and Professor Tim Nash. Ka kite anō. <laughs>